This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Want to become the sort of developer top rail shops like ThoughtBot fight over? Join Upcase today to get the pro training, insider knowledge, access to ThoughtBot developers, and a community of like-minded learners you need. Hone core skills like Vim, Tmux, Git, and Rails by visiting upcase.com slash half off to get 50% off your first month of Upcase. Let's get that junior out of your title and start leveling up today with Upcase. I see a fedora. Yes. So um, I'm currently, I'm going to turn off my video here in a sec because uh, there's not a table I could fit in here that was eye level. I'm currently in a utility closet and I'm going to have to hunch over like this to reach the microphone. Are you also smoking a cigar in the utility closet? Of course. (laughs) Okay. Hi, Sean. Hi, Yehuda. Hi, I'm Yehuda. What's up? Hey, Yehuda. It's Derek. Hi, Derek. Hi, Sean. Hi, <laughs> my name is Sean, and I am a Rustation. That's what you call yourselves? Rustations? Rust has one of a weird culture where everyone wants, doesn't want to commit to anything. So it's like that's one of like five possible names people call each other. I wonder if that comes out of uh, the, the, the fact that we're so big about Semver. Because I noticed that was Semver, too. Nobody ever wants to commit to 1.0. <laughs> No, Semver's good. Semver actually, it's like what DHH said in his blog post recently. Like, you have to actually ship, pick a deadline and ship. Yeah, yeah we talked about that a little bit in our chat. And some people were like, oh, I hate deadlines. Or, or the joke was like, I love to wave at deadlines as they, as they pass by. Um. You're allowed to love to wave at deadlines, but you don't get a choice about the fact that you either get deadlines or features, not both. So you have to basically make the call. And when you right. pick features, you always end up being sad. So... I yeah. think everyone knows that. Like everyone's been through this already, right? Yeah, I've been on. A, I mean, the, the counterpoint I gave was a project I was on that, like, just oh, Sean was on it too. The T one D project we were on, like, where there wasn't really a pressure to ship until we finally were like, no, we're going to ship by this date unless you tell us why we can't. Yep. And every version of Ember, major version of Ember so far, has had a ship date that we picked months in advance. And as we get close to it, everyone's always like, "You suck! Why did you not? You should just keep going forever." And I'm like, "No, we're just going to ship. It'll be fine. Like in three months, we'll be happy we did it." <laughs> Yeah, I've actually been wanting to switch Rails over to a release model that's closer to uh, Ember and Rust. Although I don't know if we could go to six weeks. And I think if we ever did go to a faster release cycle for Rails, we'd have to also add long-term support releases. I mean, both Ember and Rust are going to do that. And Firefox did it. I think what's funny about it is that DHH is the one who made the strong argument that I've been making in open source communities. But Rails is a pretty long release cycle project. Yeah, we're down to one year now, which, you know, is better than it used to be, at least. I mean, I think the thing that sucks about a year-long release cycle is just that the process of getting, of integrating feedback takes such a long time. Because basically, only so many people are willing to use betas, only so many people are willing to use nightlies, right? And if you don't ship for a year, as a practical matter, a lot of information is not incorporated. Yeah, well, and, and it's also like we add a lot of really good, small convenience features all the time. Like, uh, we added relation or, uh, I think, gosh, back in... I don't know, it's been a while now. It's been at least four or five months, and it's just sitting there, and it's been one of the most requested features of Rails since Rails 3. Yeah, I'd say that's definitely the bummer. As somebody who looks occasionally to contribute to Rails, it's like, well, if I, if I get this in now, it can be in for Rails 5. If I don't get I mean, it's not bad when you get to 5, because then you'll probably be able to get it into 5.1. You'll be able to get a new feature into 5.1, but like... Right, if, that's one year out. If it had been a few months ago when 4.2 was... It was like, if I don't get this in now, I'm not going to see it until 5.0 ships, and that's going to be... A year from now, or the, whatever. I mean, the crazy thing is that all the things that people assume will suck about the six-week release cycle just don't happen. You just ship. You six weeks go by. You're ready to ship. You ship. Something's not ready. You don't ship. I yep. think my main concern with it would just be because while in theory upgrading uh, between Rails versions should be pretty painless because we don't make breaking changes to public API without deprecation, but in practice everybody's using private API. Um, I, I do a- like what you guys do in, in Ember with the deprecation cycles. Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, so we have what we call intimate APIs, which is like an API that we know is private, but people are using, and we do non we do deprecations that are a few cycles, but not a full major cycle for those things. But I guess I would say Ember has, I would say perhaps a worse version of the problem than Rails because Ember is a newer framework, which means it has fewer fleshed out plugin APIs, and it definitely causes pain for people who are upgrading and they we break some private API by accident, but it ends up working out. Like, basically, people people can upgrade. They kind of know what they got themselves into. 
Um, it causes private APIs to get dependent on a little bit less, perhaps. But I think the bottom line is you add a new feature, right? You're allowed to add a new feature to the code base without saying that that feature has to be in the next release. That's really the key thing, right? Like, the reason why it would be hard to do in Rails is because literally as soon as you merge the feature, there's no infrastructure whatsoever for saying, I know I merged the feature and it's in master and other people who work on master features have to worry about it, but it's not in the next release yet. And both Rust and Ember have a, have a and all browsers have a mechanism for doing that. And that's really the key thing. The feature flagging infrastructure is how it works. Right. Well, and having language level support like we have in Rust is really nice. Yep. And Ember does an equivalent thing. We the processing happens via build tools, right? So it's like effectively a language level construct. Right. And I think you need that. Like if you if you don't have the ability to separate those two things, you're there's a massive tension around the actual pressing of the merge button. Yeah, I mean I suppose there I suppose we could actually set something uh, like that up where depending on the version of the Ruby gem we're building, we just exclude certain files because you do have to specifically say which files you want in the gem spec, right? Yep. And and Rails is uh, Ruby is a pretty monkey patch friendly language, so you could pretty easily add features as separate files. That's totally possible. You could also do, like, depending on how much you care, you could also have things behind a flag. So I care a lot about Ember and Rust not including private, like, not yet completed features in the release at all um, based on the, because of plugins, right? So if a plugin knows that it just has to flip a flag to get a private feature, you better believe every plugin is going to do that. And then what's going to happen is that you're never going to be able to upgrade. Right, So for me, for both Ember and for Rust, it's very important that there's a dividing line between I want to use experimental features, no problem, use Canary. I want to use non-experimental features, you use the stable. And that dividing line means that the plugin ecosystem also has to be split. But that's right. okay. Right? And, and I think that works out. But I think it would, it's, a, it's harder to do in Ruby. Right? Like If you already have a build step, you can just delete the code. But in Ruby, if you could keep it in a separate file, it's probably okay. Well, and usually, I mean... New features generally either are in a separate file or just given that Rails has such a module-happy uh, infrastructure, it would be pretty easy to move just about anything to a new I file. I think as a practical matter in Rails, it would not be hard to do. Yeah. And you could imagine basically like there's a directory called features or something like that in every package and the files under that or the directories under that are like the names of the features and you have to, they, you can turn them on using nightlies by some API and uh, they, but that whole directory is excluded when you release, basically. Something yeah. Like no, I like that idea a lot. Yeah. And then just if you've got the, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess the equivalent of nightlies for Rails would just be pointing at GitHub. Yep. You point at GitHub, or you, I mean, you could publish nightlies, but honestly, pointing at GitHub is fine. And yeah, and then there would be some API where you would basically say, I want this feature, and it would effectively know to require the appropriate file. Or maybe you, you probably don't want to make it require the file because it's very easy for files to move around during the experimentation phase. So, right, but like maybe we make it a config option or something. Exactly, like config dot experimental features push whatever. Seems yeah. Fine. Right, and you would only, and the, the key being there, you can only get that if you were on the GitHub version or or the yes. or the specially built nightly version. Because if you yes. like you said before, my original thought was like, oh, just put a flag for config dot feature flags dot whatever. But yeah, you're definitely right. There's going to be a gem that's like, well, I need this feature flag to operate, so I'm going to do this. And then and it's easy to say, like, well, that's something that you signed up for. But the problem is that the gems are just going to go in and initialize it and turn it on. And you're not going to even realize what you've done. Right. You're not right. going to see, like, you already don't see the monkey patches that each gem is doing, right? And now yeah. you're going to see they're going to be essentially activating different parts of Rails for you. And, and specifically, there'll be, what will happen is, like, some transitive dependency deep in the chain will enable some experimental feature. And then Rails will want to change it. But it will be a popular gem like RSpec. And what will happen, or like a dependency of RSpec, right? And what will happen is Rails will go to change it and will be like, what? What are you talking about? You opted into it. And everyone will be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I literally never typed in any line in my entire life that opted into it. It was like seven layers down. Mm -hmm. So right. you, you, you just, realpolitik-wise, you really do have to uh, separate them. But people don't want to. People, it's, uh, it's always a fight. So the, reason, the way you get around this with JavaScript is everything is, is built, right? So you can strip that out when you build it. Yep. And then the way in Rust, you're saying it has language level support for it, Sean? Yeah. Um, so there are annotations that you can add above functions and structs right. and, other, and other blocks. And there's also create level annotations, which apply to your entire package. And if you want to use a feature, you have to explicitly um, add a feature annotation to the top level file of your crate that says, like, I want to opt into this feature. But the feature annotation is only available on beta and nightly. The feature annotation is a feature that is not available on release builds. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. That sounds great. Uh, so, Sean, when are you going to get us on this uh, for Rails? 
definitely not even going to start the conversation until after five supports, but it is something right. I've been thinking about for a while. Right. So maybe after five ships. Right. And the reason why this is important, the reason why the feature flying is important is just because like, like Yehuda was saying, merging something to master shouldn't be like, or doesn't necessarily have to be like, okay, now it's going to ship in the next version, right? You can merge it to master, make it easy for people to play around with when they want to and try out and allow, and allow you to iterate some on master rather than iterating in this giant pull request that has to land all at one time. I can give a good yeah. example of this in Ember. Like in Ember, we've been working on what we call the visit API for a long time. The basic idea behind this API is today when you boot an Ember app, the actual booting process is extremely hard-coded, right? It says, wait for document ready, then run these initializers, etc. But uh, for various reasons, including testing, but also running things on the server, etc., it's good to be able to control the exact booting process. And it's good to be able to ask even on the server to be able to run multiple Ember apps of the same kind in parallel so that you could have multiple requests coming in in parallel and know that you're protected. So we have this API. It's called the visit API. You basically say app.visit. It gives you back an application instance, yada, yada, whatever. But we originally wrote it. We wrote a pretty buggy version. We landed it on master behind the feature flag. So it was actually in master. And LinkedIn, the company LinkedIn, who's uh, working on a number app right now, they used it. Um, they actually used it for something different than we intended, but they used it in their production app. And then they came back to us a few months later, you know, a month or two later, and they said, we're using it, but we have all these issues. Uh, and Godfrey, who I work with, basically went in and cleaned up all the issues. And then uh, the nice thing is it was already on master behind the feature flag. We merged his changes on master behind the feature flag. We still haven't shipped it. It's actually not in 2.2. What will happen is it will probably make it into 2.3. Because what's going to happen is at some point, LinkedIn will try the changes. They'll say, yes, this was great. It worked perfectly. And then we'll actually ship, ship it in 2.3. But it's good that they, were, that they didn't have to like, apply some kind of patch on top of another patch and hope it didn't conflict with somebody else's stuff. It's good that they were able to just use a can the Canary build, turn on the feature, play around with it, give us feedback, and have us keep iterating on master. That was a good process. In, in the Rails case, how would you divorce things that are going to be like... Here's some changes that went into master that are definitely going to be in the next release. Like, there's no way to get the feature, like, in the way we were talking, there'd be no way to get the feature flag stuff without getting the behavior that's also merged into master. So the way the Ember automation works here is that there's a feature, there's a file at the top of our repo called features.json, and it's just a list of all the features that are, exist with a true or false on them. And what happens is when we go to make, do the build... Uh, the build for the release, we actually just look at those booleans and we either strip them out or not based on that. And you can imagine in Rails, um, strip it like uh, we we said that they would be in like a separate features directory or something. Yeah, I really like that. Including, including them based on that, right? So when you go to do a build, effectively there's a meeting every week that we have as the Ember Core team and we discuss going or no going, uh, what the Rust team calls stabilizing a feature. And when we agree to stabilize a feature, all that does right that moment is it changes the flag from false to true. Which also means that in, in, the night, in the nightly, it's on by default now. You don't have to ask for it. And, and when we get to the next branch point, the beta branch point, because of the fact that we flipped the flag from false to true, when we go to build the release, it will be in there. And then I think the other point you were getting at too, though, Derek, is um, you would still, until that flag is flipped, only be able to access it on nightly. And that's sort of the point because right. it's unstable. So you are taking with it all the other instability that might come out of that. But that becomes much less of a pain if you're on a shorter release cycle, I think. I, I think the awesome thing is that there are people in the world who use all these libraries who are people that have various risk tolerances for stability, right? There's some people who want the latest new hotness, no matter what, they're willing to tolerate any amount of instability. And then there's people all the way on the other end of the spectrum who are basically going to upgrade Rails once a year or Ember once a year because they have no tolerance whatsoever for instability. And the nice thing about this process is that it makes it very easy to categorize yourself, right? If you're a person who's okay with instability, you use a canary build, you can use any add-ons or, or plugins in the Rails ecosystem that are based on those features, but you know that you signed up to be in the nightly channel. And Chrome actually innovated on this, like came up with the idea that you're a Canary user, right? And you've categorized yourself. Now, if you're a beta user, what that means is that you, do, you expect that for the most part, features that you're using will still be around in roughly the same form. And if you're a stable channel user, what that means is that you, you believe that features that you are using will be around in exactly the same form for the, forever. Right? And those are categorizations. My personal opinion is that if you try to categorize more granularly than that, like per feature, what happens is people can't reason about what it is that they mean. You have a very, I like to say you have a very blunt hammer for messaging this stability story, and a few channels is pretty much the finest that we can get. Right, that makes sense. Yeah, I can definitely see that being like, well, I'm on Rails with this feature, 
and your unrails was these other features, right? Like imagine someone says, I'm on the stable build, but I have enabled this feature. Even if they know that they did that, like what does that mean? They haven't really categorized themselves in any interesting way. It's actually, every time I have this conversation with somebody, I've had a few conversations where someone says something like, I really don't want to be on Canary because I don't like instability, but I really want this feature. You should really make it possible for me to opt in and stable. And I'm like, no, what you are saying is you're not okay with instability. So stop being okay with it, right? Like you either, you have to decide you're either okay with instability and the cost of instability or you're not okay with instability. If you're okay with instability, no problem. We have a story for you. If you're not okay, we have a story for you. If you're trying to pretend like you're okay with it, but not okay with it, you're going to be sad. You're going to make us sad. You're going to make yourself sad. So just figure it out. Do you, are you okay with stability? Instability or are you not okay with instability? And then one thing that comes out of that that I've been noticing a lot in, in the Rust ecosystem on the library side of things is there's you know, been a big push lately to get like pretty much every library that possibly can be unstable onto stable. And a lot of times if they're using an opt-in feature, it's either because like there's some function that's just a little bit faster or something that's new and, is, and just hasn't been stabilized yet. And a lot of times you can just take that one little snippet of code that will eventually hopefully be stabilized in that exact same form and just put that as a function in your own code base. Yep. I, and I think in Rust also, like one of the things that's cool is that when you say that you have to opt in to instability to get an unstable feature, it's much easier to count how many times people are using the unstable feature, right? So if you're like, okay, you know, 2016, what should we prioritize? And you know that like a large number of people are using Nightly because they want syntax extensions or something like that. It, it's much easier to see that if everyone has to opt into the Nightly ecosystem to use that feature than if it's just like a thing some crates happen to opt in, opt you into, and then there you might hear a lot of pain like, oh, cargo doesn't work so great because things are unstable, and you're like, why is that happening? And eventually, if you keep drilling, it's like, oh, the problem is that you were using this unstable feature. Like, that's much worse than okay, people are saying they're using Nightly and they're upset, and the reason is because they're using these three unstable features that we could stabilize. You think that when specialization lands, it will be the most opted into feature in all history? Um, I don't know. I think syntax extensions right now, so macro rules before, like macro right. rules were so popular that when we did 1.0, we were forced to stabilize them, even though we didn't like the feature. What was, can we, can we define some of these? Cause I know, I know a lot of people enjoy when we talk about Rust, but are in the same boat that I am that we don't necessarily know exactly what Absolutely. it is. So Rust has a macro system. Um, anytime you see the bang character in Rust, you're ta- you're looking at it as a macro and the macro system has a few layers. So the highest layer is called macro rules. And that effectively is a pattern syntax. So you can basically say, when you see this pattern, convert it to this other pattern. That's, I would say that that's pretty powerful. You can do a lot of things. Many of the macros that you use regularly when you use Rust, like the tribang macro, for example, can be expressed purely in this form. Skylight had a macro for a long time that allowed us to make um, safe extern functions. And that also was a maybe a 150-line macro, but it was described purely in terms of patterns. Um, and that, that feature, it was and always is very popular. It's basically, if you, if you find yourself writing the same syntax over and over again, but the syntax is not easy to abstract. Um, as using the programming language tools, sometimes you use a macro. You can do that in a file, you can do that in your crate, etc. There's another feature called syntax extensions, which effectively allow you to say, when you see the syntax, don't use the pattern matching stuff, just give me the AST and I'll give you a new AST, basically. Something roughly like that. So that is actually a much harder feature to stabilize. The first feature is pretty easy to stabilize in the sense that it's very bounded. You know what it does. The reason we didn't want to stabilize it is because it's just broken in some ways. For a long time, it was very unhygienic, which is bad. It's pretty hygienic now, which is a pretty sad thing to say out loud. Kind of pregnant. <laughs> sort of hygienic. Just don't um, even, Derek. Just don't. Sort of, sort of hygienic. Uh, but it's, it, it's sort of known what it does, right? Syntax extensions, on the other hand, rely a lot on the exact structure of the AST and token tree today. And it changes a lot, right? As the compiler changes, it changes a lot. So what we decided at 1.0 was we'll stabilize macro rules even though there's problems. Um, I mean, wh- one of the problems at 1.0 was that you couldn't even backtrack. So you basically had to describe your macro rules such that you could always, every rule was always, you could always dis- uh, think about it as going forward from the previous rule. The previous rule failed. But of course, that's not like a reasonable way to do pattern matching. You need to be able to backtrack and try something else. But for a long time, that wasn't even possible with macro rules. And I don't even, I'm not sure of the state of that today, actually. But the point is, macro rules sucked. If I can just interject for one, for one second, uh, too, just in case anybody is still unclear on this, the thing that, that takes an AST and returns a new AST is just an arbitrary Rust function. 
Yes, confirm. So basically, macro rules ended up landing, but syntax extensions, there was really no way for us to stabilize because syntax extensions really are talking about the AST. And the AST is very, very, very unstable. So I guess the, what I'm saying is macro rules were before by far the most popular unstable feature. Probably syntax extensions now are by far the most popular unstable feature. And it could be that specialization will become by far the most uns popular unstable feature. Which um, one is, what is specialization? I think we talked about this before, ah, Sean. So if Sean has already talked about it, I'll say something. Maybe he will correct me. Um, <laughs> so the idea behind the Rust trait system is really cool. Um, the way the Rust trait system works is that it, you, can, you can kind of think of it like a Ruby mix-in in the sense that you're describing a set of functionality uh, you might have a few mandatory methods, like, for example, in Ruby, enumerable has a mandatory each method that you have to implement, but then you get a bunch of other methods for free. Uh, traits kind of work uh, similar to this at a very, very, like a 100,000-foot view, um, how you describe them. And then what you can do is, once you've described a trait, so you said, I have the enumerable trait, and it has a mandatory each method, and these other methods that come along with it, you can say, I would like to implement the enumerable trait for array. I would like to implement the enumerable trait for hash, like etc., mm -hmm. right? And that's pretty cool. And what that basically means is that, um, first of all, it's very easy for someone writing a new collection to implement it. And this is actually how the iterator trait works for real in Rust. There's, you only have to implement next. And once you've implemented next, you get effectively Ruby's enumerable toolkit for free, except that it's fast. <laughs> uh, but so that, that's, that's nice for people implementing these traits. But in order to make this work and be fast, one of the rules that Rust has today is that for any given thing that you implement a trait for, so if I say, imp I would like to implement enumerable for hash, nobody else can implement enumerable for any additional hash. So let's say I say, okay, I've implemented enumerable for hash, but then someone says, ah, I've implemented hash within different access or parameters, and I would like to implement a special enumerable because I know the internal implementation lets me write a more efficient version of each, or I can do map better. In Rust today, you cannot do that. You can only implement a trait for a set of types that nobody implemented the trait for yet. And you can sort of understand why this is, right? If you call a method, it's important for Rust to know exactly what method you're calling, and that's part of how Rust ends up being fast, right? Rust ends up being able to know, it is able to drill all the way through, figure out all the things that you're calling, and then build a very optimized result from that. So you can't, uh, it can't just be willy-nilly. It can't, certainly can't be a runtime lookup in most cases. So that's how it works today. Uh, the consequence of this, and you'll hear this if you like float around the Rust ecosystem, is that there's a, a thing called the orphan orphan rule, and the orphan rule basically says that if I, that if I define a trait, uh, actually there's one thing that I haven't said about traits yet, which is that if I define a new trait, I'm allowed to implement that trait for like any built-in for any type I want. So if I implement, you can implement like one dot day dot go in Rust very easily because I can implement a trait that has the day method on it, and then I can implement it for i32, and that's totally fine, and it's static dispatch and everything is awesome. Hmm. So what the orphan rule says is if I define a trait, I could define it for any types I want, but if I'm trying to implement someone else's trait, I can only implement that trait for types that I have created. And the exact rules are complicated and uh, because there's things like a vec of, or you know, array of my thing. Is that considered my type or not? And so there's rules about how that ends up working. But the long and short of it is, roughly speaking, if I have someone else's trait, I can implement it for any type that I made. And uh, if I make a trait, I can implement it for anyone else's type. Uh, and, and that actually gives you a lot of space, right? But there's unfortunately a problem with everything I just said. And it's a problem that specialization is trying to solve, which is imagine that I've written a trait we have in Rust called read. The read trait just lets you read a byte at a time out of some thing that is readable. Like every modern language has this trait. Mm -hmm. Now Rust also has a trait called uh, seek. The trait called seek basically is on top of reader, and it requires reader or read, but it allows you to say, I would like to skip 500 bytes. And you don't have to read the 500 bytes. You can just skip them. And some readers know how to do that. And if the reader knows how to do it, you get an efficient skip. Now, let's say I want, let's say I want to write some code that skips 500 bytes. What I, what I would probably want to do is I would probably want to write a trait called skip, and I would like that trait to work for all kinds of readers. Right? So maybe if I, let's say I start to do that in Rust, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make the trait called skip, say skip 500 bytes, and what I'll do is I'll implement it for read as just read 500 bytes into a buffer that I throw away right away. That's going to work fine. It's going to work for all readers, right? Mm -hmm. And now I could just use that skip trait anywhere in my thing. I could say skip 500 bytes, everything works great. But the problem here is what I would really like to be able to say is, okay, that is the default implementation. 
But for any reader that imp also implements seek, just use that facility because that's going to be faster. You don't have to read it into a buffer. Unfortunately, in today's world, you cannot do that. Once you have implemented the uh, skip trait for any reader, you cannot also implement it for a more specialized or more refined version of the same thing. And what specialization lets you do is specialization lets you say, you're allowed to implement a trait for a set of types that someone else has already implemented a trait, the same trait for, as long as it's a smaller set. Right. right? So as long as you're refining the set of cases, you're fine. Now, that doesn't always work, but basically it works in almost all interesting cases. So anyway, I just probably said a lot. Sean may have some things to say. Well, no, I mean, I've just, that, I think that was a really good overview. One additional uh, case, just to give another concrete example of where this is useful um, from the stuff that we've been talking about with, with the ORM, um, I've got two traits that I have. One's called to SQL, one's called from SQL, and they're both generic over a SQL type. So for example, uh, I32 implements to SQL for uh, integer, uh, and it also implements from SQL for integer. And then there's a SQL type that sort of wraps other types called nullable. And so then I have this generic implementation that says for any type that implements uh, from SQL for this SQL type, option of that implements from SQL for uh, nullable of that type. Now for to SQL, what I'd uh, like to be able to do is be able to say like that exact same thing for any type that uh, for any type that implements to SQL for the SQL type, option implements to SQL for uh, nullable of that of that uh, type. But I'd also then uh, like to be able to just pass in a non-option into any nullable thing because while it's not safe to read uh, to read a nullable column into something that isn't an option, it is safe to pass a thing that isn't an option into a nullable uh, column. And if you're doing if you're going to do things like where some nullable column dot eq some value, you don't want to have to like say some some value. Uh, you just want to be able to pass the value in directly. But uh, right now today, those two things overlap. And um, I guess this actually isn't even necessarily part of the um, specialization proposal as it is today, but an extension that's been proposed uh, on the RFC, which allows when you have two things that do overlap, you can uh, disambiguate them by providing a third implementation that tells the compiler what to do in the case where both things apply. Yeah, so the, I mean, I think the cool thing about everything, probably a lot of people just heard me, uh, me talk and then Sean talk and was like, I have literally no idea what any of the things you're saying are. Um, so... The way Ruby tends to work itself out is that there's like a handful of people who know how to do metaprogramming and a smaller handful of people that know how to do really complicated, really powerful metaprogramming. And those people write the libraries that make it very ergonomic to use. So if I'm using Arrow, I don't have to know how to write Arrow. And in fact, if I try to understand it, probably almost everyone, including me, like the first time I looked at Arrow, I was like, I have no idea what's happening here at all. And I think that, that that is how powerful programming languages tend to sort themselves out, is that there's tools that people can use who are writing the most complicated, most powerful, most ergonomic abstractions, and then there's the people who are using them. And if, in my case, I'm, I, I wear both hats. A lot of the time, I'm building apps. I'm like, you know, DHH in 2014 said there's like computer scientists and information uh, scientists, or whatever he called it, and he's like, well, I don't ever want to be a computer scientist, uh, because it's like a totally different skill set when you're building an app. And I actually agree. It's a totally different skill set when you're building an app. I think, personally, I like to put on the CS hat and build good abstractions from time to time so that my app building self is happy. But definitely when I build an app, I want to build an app. I want to be thinking about design. I want to be thinking about usability. I want to be thinking about how my users experience the thing I'm building. So I don't want to be thinking about how to build Arrow or how to write a nullable SQL column. <laughs> um, but I think what's nice about both Rust and Ruby is that the tools are there for people who are really deep in the weeds to build very ergonomic things that when you use them feel nice. This is a thing people don't like or outside of Ruby complain about Ruby about, which is like it looks like it's very complicated, right? They're, they look at maybe like how metaprogram works and it feels complicated. But the truth is that there's a very strong dividing line between the people writing the most ergonomic abstractions and the people using them. And generally speaking, we've done a good job in the Ruby ecosystem of having those abstractions, generally speaking, not leak, right? So from time to time, sure, you'll hit something with RSpec that causes you to have to care about what RSpec is exactly doing. But you could use RSpec for like five years and mostly not have to know about how it's implemented, which is, by well, the way, complicated. And I think the RSpec guys would argue if it ever does leak, that is something that they want to fix. Yes, it's absolutely. When I said it leaks, I just mean the argument that people usually use is because abstractions inevitably leak, you should just never, you should like basically don't use, this is like the go attitude, right? The go attitude is 
we're not going to give you complicated tools because it's just a way to make a mess. And that's just not, has not been my experience in literally any other programming language. Certainly it is possible to make a mess, but it is also possible to build things of great power and leverage. And I'm much more interested, I guess I'm like DHH in a sense, I don't, I'm much more interested in giving people tools for bu- doing things of great power and leverage if it empirically turns out that the vast majority of the time you can use them and achieve that leverage and not have to worry about the way that the implementation happened. And so it's, it's just, I think Rust is on, it's on the same side basically as that, but for something where performance matters a lot more, right? So the amount of work you have to do to build something like what Sean is building right now is actually even more than the work it takes to build Arrow, which is already quite high. But the consequence of that is that you get something that is actually pretty ergonomically equivalent. Like if you look at the usage of Sean's library, it feels pretty close to Arrow, but what you're getting is a map, like orders of magnitude faster thing. And you just and guaranteed correctness. And yes. And and you just can't do that in a programming language that decides up front, like that tool is too sharp. We're not going to give it to you. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, you know, and that's one of the things too, is that uh, like we've talked about this a little bit before, but the experiences that I've talked about with writing this library just don't reflect even normal library creation, I think. And it's mainly just because this code is super, super, super generic and is trying to be super, super, super type safe and not have a lot of runtime checks. And both of those things make it a lot harder. But you, even if you're writing libraries and tools for other people to use, you don't necessarily ever quite end up that far down that rabbit hole. I, the only other person I know who ended up that far down the rabbit hole is Carl. And he's doing things like writing a library, which is a generic future or stream implementation, which is like, by definition, almost the most generic thing you could possibly write. Talking about Meal? Uh, no, Eventual is the specific library I have. Okay. <laughs> but basically, the thing about, so this is actually like a cool thing about programming languages in general, which is, I think a lot of people who are like Ruby programmers or JavaScript programmers, their experience of static typing is like Java, right? Or a programming language like Java. And mm-hmm. when you write, in, uh, when you use a programming language like Java, it, it, is, it allows you to do a lot of things, and more modern Java's let you do a lot of things. But there are some hard limits on how generic you can get. And maybe some people have also experienced languages like Haskell, which have done a lot to make it possible to build more generic things. But Haskell feels very complicated, even in general, simple usage. And I think what's kind of interesting is that there's nothing inherent about static typing that is at odds with genericness. It's just that you need, you need some tools, right? But it's 2015. We're not in like 1970 anymore. We kind of know what tools we need. There's still some experimentation going on. But it's not like, I feel like when you read like the Go guys' opinion about generics, they're like, you know, generics are some like crazy academic idea, highfalutin in an ivory tower. It's just so complicated. Like Java uses generics. Java is like the most conservative language ever. Like it's, you almost cannot come up with a more conservative language than Java. And they figured out like Java, Java is boilerplate city, right? But the boilerplate associated with not having generics was so high that even Java pretty early on in its life cycle figured out that they needed to do something about it. There's a difference between like, higher kinds of types, and generics. Well, and the thing that I've never quite gotten about that Go argument, too, is like, so what? Is your argument that runtime casting of empty interface is better? Because people end up having to do that all over the place. Well, and I think, so it's actually a little worse than that even, which is, I think the argument, I'll try to make the charitable version, I think the argument is that if we make it really hard, then people won't do it as much, right? So... The argument is that writing really generic code is basically an anti-pattern, and you should write the concrete version of the thing for the thing you're trying to do. And if you have to cast to interface and cast out of interface, empty interface all the time, then yeah, you might do that, but you won't do it as much as like the amount of generic code that exists in Rust or like Ruby. Yeah, I suppose it's fair. I I think so. I think that's the charitable version of the argument, but I think it, it's like so empirically divorced from from my experience of writing code in any programming language that I don't understand. Like, the people working on Go are not, they have written code in their life. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're not idiots. And I, there's I want to, like, meet one of the people who makes that argument with a straight face one day and really just duke it out. Because generics are just not a very complicated kind of programming construct. They're certainly the path down that you can take down towards very complicated constructs. And maybe that's what they're saying. They're saying if we start down that path, you're going to end up with monads. Sure, that is certainly a concern. So, so. I think part of it is that structural typing is pretty good. Like, structural typing lets you do a certain kind of generic programming very nicely that is hard to do without... If you have no generics and no structural typing, it's hard. 
So having it helps. But I don't know. I just, I've written a lot of code in a lot of languages with the various typing stories, and I'm surprised it works out, basically. I mean, and it, and it does work out, right? So there must be, there's a better explanation than uh, everybody's a bunch of idiots. But there's something interesting. I mean, I, I guess I should be clear. I'm not saying I'm surprised it works out, and it's obviously fine. It's working out, and so they're right. I'm saying there's something you can definitely build ecosystems where people are willing to do more, be it, uh, you know, SNM because they are convinced that they're doing something that's on the side of the light side instead of the dark side. I think you, that's like sort of the motto of today's world is that you get programming ecosystems that tell each other that this pain and suffering that they're experiencing is in service of some thing that is the side of light. It's either it can be simplicity or it can be functional programming um, you know, the React ecosystem is all about this. The React ecosystem is all the pain and suffering you're experiencing. It's fine because it's about functional. It's about immutable. It's about doing code the right way. It's hard because it's supposed to be hard in this way. Yeah, it's hard because, it, exactly. It's hard because it's supposed to be hard. All those other ways that it was hard in, those were the wrong ways to be hard in. But this or is the like right N- way to be hard in. Or like NPM not wanting a lock file, right? It's like <sighs> they have convinced themselves that this is a virtuous thing. And I think, I guess that's like my my kryptonite, personally, is... And I think DHH has the right idea here, largely, which is you should... DHH has actually given this talk like five times, probably. Like, you shouldn't accept pain and suffering because someone tells you that platonically something is a good idea. You should have to actually... You should experience it and it should be better. should feel better. And the, the idea that, like, this thing is too complex in the abstract, therefore we should stop doing it, isn't good enough. I don't know. I guess part of it is also, like, small programs versus medium-sized programs versus large programs. And you see the same story playing itself out. People who, who think, well, obviously this thing doesn't work in big programs, so the problem is that you're writing a big program instead of a little program. Except that when you're writing a lot of little programs and putting them together, you've built a big program. You haven't really actually changed the complexity profile very much at all. right? So I guess what I'm saying is it's easy to convince yourself. That's part of how it works. right? You, write a, you say, oh, I've been writing Rails for 10 years, 5 years, whatever. I, it's all feels very heavy and complex. Let me go try. I'll try to build a microservice in Sinatra. Oh, it's, that was so great. It was so easy. It was so simple. It felt so good. So nice. I'm just going to do everything from then on. But really, all you've done is shown that you can write a single controller in a single file. Yes, I already know that. That is already true. Everybody knows that already, right? Mm-hmm. You haven't actually shown that when you have 50 Sinatra apps that are having to work in concert, that there's anything simpler about it at all. But when you, go, when you get to that point where you've doubled and quadrupled down on that story, then you end up with, you, 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 it's hard for you to admit that you may have done something wrong. Well, and I think that's sort of um, my issue with, with Go in a lot of ways, is that Go does feel a lot to me, kind of like Sinatra is to Rails, in that I think it's really, really good for building small, sharp tools. If I were going to build like a random little one-off command line interface or a one-off microservice, Go would be a great uh, choice for, uh, for that, I think. But uh, and then I also get the argument if you if you're at this massive scale, right, where no matter what your code base is just going to be so huge that I mean, this is a lot of where where Java is still so popular in enterprise as well, is that ultimately there there comes a point where you're so huge that no amount of abstraction is actually going to help reduce that complexity. And so at that point, when you have that many engineers working on the same code base, forcing them to lay everything out all of the time can help to understand uh, can help when you're having to understand that piece of the code, because there's a good chance you've never seen it before when you're working on it. Yep. But then there's that scale in the middle where, like, literally everybody else lives. And abstractions are still incredibly useful there. I'm not even necessarily trying to say abstractions aren't useful at that larger scale. Um, so much as just... Time, right? At, at, right. The really, at the really big scale, it's still exactly an abstraction. It's just that the abstraction is, instead of saying, these are my arguments to my method, or these are the, uh, this is the constructor signature for my class, you're saying, this is the API for my microservice. But it's the same thing. It's just that you have more error cases. So in order to justify that, your HTTP error cases, you better have a system that needs the massive amount of decoupling that you're introducing. Anyway, uh, all that is just to say, uh, basically today's, I I actually noticed something recently, which is that if you look at 2015, it's hard to notice how much it is the case that new ecosystems like Node and Go and the front-end JavaScript ecosystem are dominated by sort of Tea Party uh, attitudes. I'm probably someone in the room is going to be a Tea Party guy here. Nope. Uh, the tea Party <laughs> attitudes towards individualism and anti-abstraction. Uh, I don't. I'm not even making a value judgment about T 
Tea Party attitudes, except to say that it's very, it's just very easy. We're in a moment in not only programming, but in society where it's very easy to say, it's very easy to be skeptical about community solutions, solutions that involve like people working together to find a common answer. That is just, a, we're in a moment in time where that's just a thing people are skeptical of in general at, at high scale. And a lot of things like Rails and Java and C Sharp and Objective-C, those things predate this moment. And they have big communities and they have a lot of abstraction and they have a lot of frameworks that help people build stuff with high leverage. But if you take out of the picture anything that wasn't created in like the last five years, pretty much Ember and Rust are outliers here, right? The, 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 of the things that were created recently, almost all of them have the attitude of you're, you should build a tiny thing. If you're building a big thing, you're doing it wrong. Everything you build should be tiny. Every collection of things should be strictly decoupled. Programs should be written not by groups of people, but by one person times N. And, and it's just easy to, for, to, because of the fact that there's so much software still written in ecosystems that are not under five years old, it's easy to sometimes forget that it's just, it is actually the dominant philosophy among almost all new ecosystems. I mean, do, does Rust even necessarily share that though? Because one of the things no, that I've... Rust is an outlier, I think. Okay. Well, because, I mean, Rust is very much like tiny and stripped down and yeah, there's always a big push uh, to move things out uh, of standard library. But so, so here is the funny thing. You are correct. But there is a difference between, so every, there's a reason why conservative ideas are popular. Because a lot of times someone says something and they are saying a true thing. But the total result, you take it to its logical conclusion, often you end up with a crazy result. And in the case of small software, it is actually true that breaking up libraries into small pieces and having the small pieces have clear interfaces, especially when the libraries are heavily used, in other words, the more common a popular library is, or the more popular piece of a library is, the higher probability it is that it should be broken out into its own thing. These are all true things, right? But that has really nothing whatsoever to do with whether or not a thing like Rails should exist. Right. right? And in fact, if you look at, like, what, what did I do? What was my career in Rails? My career in Rails was I started off using Rails in a project that was really a bad fit for Rails very early on uh, called Procore was a, a port of a ASP, that, a ASP Classic app. And we fought with Rails 1x a lot. And I found Merv and I liked it. And I ended up becoming a contributor on Merv. But the idea with Merv was not that the problem, it was not the idea that Sinatra has. It was not that the problem with Rails is that it's too opinionated. It was that the problem with Rails is that it has an opinionated layer with nothing underneath. Right. And for me, that is like, that's my thing, I guess, is that, you should do convention over configuration, but convention over configuration doesn't mean convention without configuration. It means convention over configuration. Um, well, and there's no reason Rails couldn't exist as each of its components being smaller and more isolated and Rails being the thing that curates and stitches them together. And I think, so. I, and I guess that was sort of where I was going with this is if you actually look at Rails 2.3, Rails 2.3 actually had no dependencies. It was like Django, right? And Rails 5 has like 50 dependencies. And increasingly, there are dependencies. Now, yes, because of where Rails started and because of like where Ember started, there's still a big chunk in the middle that's monolithic. Um, and I think both Rails and Ember try to break that apart a little at a time. Um, and, I, and like I said, I think Rust is right that you should, you should start more or less with less, fewer things. But I think it's good that things like Iron exist. And I think it's good that things like Rails exist. And I just think it's a mistake to derive... Just like it's, a, like it's actually true that a small a local government is better at fixing potholes than the federal government. That is actually a true thing, right? You don't actually want uh, Congress fixing your pothole. But that, deriving from that, that therefore there should be no federal government and the federal government should just basically exist to perhaps give some money to local governments is not obviously true either, right? Because there's a lot of other things going on in the world other than fixing potholes. Unlike all things, right, there's the middle ground between monolithic and everything being a, a micro library with two functions. I'm, so I guess one way I like to think about this problem is that there are various um, levels of domain, right? So um, we're all writing computer programs, which means we're all talking about things that can be expressed as programs. But then there's like a, the domain of desktop and the domain of mobile. And it is actually true that in the domain of desktop, at the moment, Intel processors are better. And in the domain of mobile, ARM processors are, are better because of some trade-offs that have to be made. But that's also very low level. And then on top of that, there's like the domain of uh, portable Unix programs or portable programs period. And you use like C to do that, right? And on top of that, there's like the domain of server programs. And you might use 
uh, higher level scripting-ish language to do something like that, right? So there's these domains. And as you go up the stack, you're basically, most of the time for a while, you're making language, programming languages. You're saying, uh, well, we need a new programming language because in this domain, it's so different from a lot of other domains that we need a programming language that's designed for it. And so like scripting language is a thing and uh, systems language is a thing, right? But at some point you reach a place where you can no longer make a special language just for the domain. You don't really want, like PHP is a web language, but we don't really want that, right? We don't really want a programming language that only makes sense on the web. So what has to happen once you reach a certain point of domain specificness is you have to start building things that are like programming languages, but they are hosted inside of a programming language. And at that point, you really want your programming language to be powerful. So this is the concept of like, what is a DSL, domain-specific language, right? A domain-specific language is a programming language that is hosted inside of another programming language. And so what happens is you, the reason Rails exists, this is like sort of counter to the idea that you should only build, you should only use the tools that are inside your programming language. And if you need something more specific, everyone should just roll their own, right? But there's a question, which is why is the programming language boundary the boundary? Why is that the place where abstraction dies? And the idea behind domain-specific languages and vertical stacks is now that we've gotten past the point where it's reasonable to have a whole programming language dedicated to this one thing, maybe we could still build up. Maybe we could build more abstractions. So Rails is a pretty tall abstraction that's based on a very specific domain, which is request-response HTTP-based web programming. And yes, it may be the case that not every single thing is in that domain. And if you're not in that domain, it's probably a shitty thing to use to write your program. But that doesn't mean that the answer is nobody should ever build Rails. It just means that you should probably build something else if you, for your domain. And maybe you're building something that's so far off the beaten path that there's no plausible way to build an abstraction for your domain. All that's fine. Yeah. And then the nice, uh, what is nice, if what can come out of that, is maybe there's bits and pieces of Rails that are usable on their own that do still apply to whatever domain you're actually in, and we can still share all that logic. And that, I mean, that's what vertical stacks are about, right? People say it's a vertical stack, not like a big, messy room stack, because a vertical stack is building more and more domain-specific as you go up. And like this is, again, what I believe in. I believe that what you should try to do is you should try to have various places along the vertical axis where you could just cut off the rest and say, okay, I'm done. This is the level of domain-specific that I'm at. Yeah, we just have to go in and uh, backfill all of those lower levels in Rails. It's already, I mean, the Extensible Web Manifesto is about this. I, it's always the case that if you have a monolithic thing, it's work to, to, to drill down. But I think Rails is already better than it was in Rails, the Rails 2.3 era, largely due to a lot of work a lot of people did around the 3 era, but also since then. And I think I, I, it's the only unfortunate thing about all this, the only real unfortunate thing is that the position that I have right now, so convention over configuration is already unpopular as in a position. It's already controversial. And convention over configuration is uh, where, you're, where you're also trying to build it as a curated stack is incredibly unpopular. So it's just hard. It's like, I always end up finding myself fighting with people like DHH, who I largely agree with across the board, but who, for him, the priority of building the vertical stack in a granular way is just not a hot... He doesn't feel it in his stomach, right? Well, and, and I think one thing that I've always felt that I've never really heard talked about as nearly as much as just convention over configuration is I think convention over configuration necessitates strong configuration. And then at that point, ultimately, convention over configuration is just having reasonable defaults. And, and actually, um, convention over configuration is a bit of a misnomer because you don't really want configuration. You want layer, right? right. You don't want, uh, I'll give you, it's actually like people do convention over configuration backwards often where they build the convention first and then they give you a knob. But the knob is just always fundamentally uncomposable, right? You, if you turn one knob and another knob, maybe those two knobs don't do the right thing together at all. And if you build the convention as a layer, a thin layer on top of configuration, which is, again, what we always talked about in the Merb days, then if you want to do something else, just chop, just remove the layer and do something else. And, and what's also especially nice about this is that if you make it pop, like the people who are operating at the lower, lower level, DHH is correct, are like 1% of all the people. However, those people are actually disproportionately more likely to contribute. Um, I, don't, there's not any, I don't have a scientific explanation for this, except to say that usually people who are drilling down into the abstractions are more capable and, and motivated to contribute back than people who are using the abstraction. So um, it actually is worth helping out the people who are using one or two or even three layers of abstraction down because they, the likelihood that they'll contribute back is pretty high. Well, and I think a big part of it also can just come down to how you go about implementing your abstractions. If you make the APIs that you need to build your higher level API also pleasant to use, I mean, just as, as, as a 
kind of arbitrary example, right? I'm not sure that we we have anyone who's really, or at least that I haven't seen talking about it too much publicly, that's building like anything that they're claiming is a full-on game engine in Rust yet. But what you do see um, are things that are moving more and more towards that be- being built on top of each other. Like at the lowest level, maybe this is one level above the lowest, but like you have Gellium, right? Which takes OpenGL, which kind of sort of that API can apply really, really well to RAII and just sort of wraps it in Rustness and applies OpenGL contexts into a decent Rust API and doesn't necessarily try to abstract anything beyond that. Uh, beyond that. And I'm not, probably not thinking of Gellium. I'm thinking of... Uh, one layer down from that, but um, doesn't necessarily try and say like, oh, and here's how you're going to go about doing math, or like, here's what a mesh looks like and how you go about rendering it. Only just does it, uh, wraps the OpenGL API in something rusty, and then on top of it, you have all of those other pieces, which all may or may not build directly on OpenGL, like uh, certainly something to do matrix math would live on its own, but, uh, you know, they can keep building on top of each other, and because each of these la- layers is pleasant to use to build the next layer up, you just end up with that delicious layer cake of goodness automatically. Yeah. I, I think a really good example is actually is a library I worked on with Carl called Nix. You probably encountered Nix in your travels. Yep. Um, so Nix is just a library that wraps the Unix API. So the, uh, not all of it. It's, like, effectively whatever we needed, whatever anybody needed. Um, but instead of just... Uh, exposing the raw C API as a Rust C API, effectively, unsafe, it always wraps the C API in a Rust C API. Not a, a, a very, very abstracted one, but like, for example, in C, if you call uh, a system API, a lot of times you get back an error code. In Rust, you're expected to get back a result. So in Nix, you always get back a result. And uh, I agree with you. Like Actually taking the time to design that API so that there was an idiomatic story for adding new Nix APIs that felt good really made it easy for people who are building the next layer. Like, most people are not talking directly to the system, right? But if you're building something on top of Nix, it's pretty pleasant. And I think that's good. That's important. And I think also apps of sufficient scale tend to kind of blur the line a little bit between, like, APIs for app developers and API for li- APIs for library developers. When you get big enough, you just sort of ultimately always need to drop down because there's, nothing's ever going to be quite right. There's always some guy or, like, group of guys on your team, folks, some folks on your team, who are the abstraction people, right? There's like LinkedIn, for example, has like 100 engineers or something working on their Ember app. I don't know how many. But there's like a small handful of people that work on abstractions. And that's always going to end up being the case in any app of sufficient scale. So I agree. I don't think it's useful to say um, this is a plugin API. You should only use this if you're a plugin. But I do think it's useful to say uh, this API is meant to be used for building other abstractions. So I think we're getting pretty close to time. Did you want to talk about uh, Skylight at all? Sure. I guess I could just ramble about why this turns out to be annoying. The whole problem turns out to be annoying. Rambling's good. Okay, so I work on Skylight. Skylight's a performance monitoring thing for Rails. I would, we started off at the very beginning. We said we don't want to build another, yet another performance monitoring tool. We want to build something that's more like Fitbit for your app was the original <laughs> slogan that we came up with. And the basic idea of this is that it's not, we're not trying to build something that's like life alert, was the analogy that we used in the beginning, where we're going to tell you when everything is hitting the fan. It's more, and this is before um, Code Climate existed, but it's more analogous to Code Climate. We're gonna, we tell you when things are getting worse. We give you enough information to do regular, go to the gym, right? do regular maintenance. Um, so number one, this is already pretty hard, because it's a lot easier to convince your boss to spend money on something on life alert than it is to spend money on Fitbit um, or the gym. But it turns out that the gym and Fitbit are actually pretty important. So that, that's the first hard problem. But the second hard problem is that fundamentally the information that we are rep- we're describing does not look like the information that people have in their head. So uh, let me say what I mean by this. So if I was to tell you that the average person in the United States was like five foot five or six or something, you would reasonably in your heads think, well, that probably means that like a small number of people are like five feet tall or six feet tall and like an even smaller number of people are like four foot tall and seven foot tall and basically you're not going to encounter like a two foot tall person or a nine foot tall person, right? That's how you imagine things working and it's kind of a hard-coded thing. It's like in the, in our, the evolution of our brain is to think of the world this way because basically that's how the natural world works for whatever reason. But the real, the, the human world, the, the world of civilization actually does not work like this at all. So, for example, if you look at cities, and if I was to tell you the average city in the United States is 1 million people big, it would be incorrect to say, well, that means there's like some cities with 500,000 and some cities with 1.5 million and some cities with like 250,000 and some cities with 1.75 million, but basically you're not going to encounter a 10 million person city, 
That is wrong, right? Mm-hmm. What is actually the case is that there's a lot of cities, there's a long tail of cities at like 10,000 people and 100,000 people, whatever, and there's a, a, lar- a bunch of cities that are at the, there's like two ways to draw this out, but basically there's like a bunch of cities, there's like surprising number of cities that are like 8 million people in the world, and there's also a cluster of cities that are like in the 10,000 range. And the same thing works with income, like U.S. income. If I tell you the average U.S. income is $55,000 or the median U.S. income is $55,000, it would be, you would not correctly interpret it if you interpreted it as human height. And this is just normally, it's true about book sales, it's true about everything, everything that involves humans. The reason why this is true is something called the law of preferential attachment, which is uh, sometimes known as the Matthew rule for a Matthew uh, verse that says, effectively, the rich get richer. Um, but preferential attachment basically means that there are certain things, mostly involving humans um, and networks, crucially, where once something is already happening, it happens more. So if I already have a bunch of Twitter followers, it is likely the case that I will have more Twitter uh, per day, get more Twitter followers than someone with less, because my network is going to produce more people than some of a smaller network. And the result of this, just in practice, ends up being some kind of distribution that is more logarithmic than it is linear, right? Which means... Uh, it looks kind of like a bell curve squished off to the left. And here's why this sucks for performance monitoring. Why it sucks is that if you tell someone, like every one of our competitors tells people, that your average response time is 200 milliseconds, the interpretation that they have in their head is, ah, it's pretty good. It's probably fine. But in fact, what is happening, if you look at the real numbers, is that it is almost always the case, this is almost reliably the case based on our data, that if I tell you the median response time is 200 milliseconds, that there are 1 in 20 responses is more than 10 times longer than that, 10x. So if I tell you the median is 200 milliseconds, that means that 1 out of 20 times that someone clicks on a link on your page, they're getting something that is worse than 2 seconds. That is a very different thing than what people imagine when they look at New Relic. And it, we've spent a lot of our time, and even more recently, trying to figure out how to show you what's happening in a way that will unlearn the wrong intuition. Um, and that is, and unfortunately, that also causes people to believe that average is a useful number, which it is not. Basically, average tells you nothing. Yeah, I saw you tweeting about this the other day, where it was like, "What's the, what's the if if fiftieth percentile <laughs> is average performance, what is ninety fifth percentile?" And I think, and then I saw the email come out later, and it was called you guys you guys changed it to like problem performance or something like that. And I was like, "Oh, that's pretty good, problem performance." Problem. I mean, so the thing that <laughs> sucks, the thing that sucks about it, is that the idea that one out of every 20 requests is 10 times slower. I, I, I can say that to you out loud, and it actually sounds important. But for some reason, in, if when you're looking at a thing like New Relic or Skylight, you're not in a state of mind to understand that that's happening. You're in a state of mind to quickly scan a bunch of numbers and decide based on quickly scanning a bunch of numbers that you don't have an intuition about whether or not things are, quote-unquote, pretty good. And that is just the opposite of what the real data is telling you. So far, we've mostly dealt with just like giving you a good representative trace. So you can say, oh, show me what this endpoint looks like. And then you can say, show me what it looks like for really slow requests. Show me what it looks like for fast ones. And that helps. And uh, someone had a tweet today that was something like, um, we just did a bunch of Skylight-related performance improvements. And it went from like two seconds to like 200 milliseconds. And I was like, that is awesome. And I pasted it in our Slack. It's awesome. <laughs> right? But, and, and people, that happens. Like we have a lot of customers and people are happy and the people who know what they're looking at get a lot of value out of it. And, but what we're really, like, the next frontier for us is to figure out how to express what's happening to people who don't know what they're looking at, which actually turns out to be more people. So, anyway. That's so what you're saying is your, uh, that, that Skylight will tell me that my app is slow and New Relic will tell me that my app is fast. So therefore, New Relic makes my app faster? So, <laughs> at, actually, at, you say that as a joke, but at the beginning of Skylight, the hardest problem that we encountered. So we, we always have reported 95th percentile as like kind of a top line number. And again, 95th percentile means uh, out of every 100 clicks that a user has in your page, 95 of them are faster than this and five of them are slower. So this is not like some kind of weird outlier like happens, it's not like Hurricane, Hurricane Katrina or something, right? It happens, I, I try sometimes use weather analogies. Like if, it's like the amount of rain that happens like 15 times a year, not the amount of rain that happens once every 10 years. Right? It happens a lot. If you're thinking about moving into a city, you probably care if it rains a lot 15 times out of the year, that's probably relevant. You probably are not going to call that an outlier. Right? So that, that, that's, that's what we always reported, 93 percentile. But at the beginning, before we got at all good at representing any of this information, a lot of people used Skylight and quit on the grounds that we were giving them unrealistically high numbers. Like they could not imagine 
that the number was reporting a real thing. Because New Relic had been telling them, like, they log into New Relic every day for the past two years, and they saw 150 milliseconds. Suddenly, they log into Skylab, and they see 900 milliseconds. They're like, this cannot be right. Mm-hmm. They couldn't even, they even knew that we were talking about 90th percentile, right? But it just felt, they didn't understand the numbers at all. Right. Um, so, so that's why we've gone to uh, typical performance and problem, or typical response and problem response now. Um, like everywhere throughout the app now, we show you in the, in the, we haven't shipped this yet, but in the designs that we're working on, every place always shows you typical and problem. Um, we always try to make it clear that problem doesn't mean outlier. But this is all, I was saying to someone on the phone today that probably the thing for Skylight to understand about itself is that we are going to be a company for not, not just for people who already know the statistics, but we're probably going to be a product for a lot of people who not only don't know the statistics when they sign up, but who will never know the statistics the entire time they use the product. They're never going to know what a histogram is or what 93rd percentile is or what a distribution is. They're just never going to. Now, it's great that Skylight is good for people who do know it, and it's great that we use good statistics, right? But we have to be able to give people actionable information if they don't have any idea what any of it means. And that actually turns out very hard. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say that my experience using Skylight was interesting to see, like, right off the bat, here's your, here's your I, at the time, average or typical or whatever it was called, and here's your 95th percentile, right? And I understand what a 95th percentile is, so I understand immediately, like, whoa, that's actually a decent number of people are getting this terrible performance here. Yeah. Um, so when you tweeted that out and was like, what's what's an alternative for the 95th percentile? All I could come up with was, was well, how about the 95th percentile? Like, that makes yeah. sense to me, right? So, <laughs> I mean, so the thing that's bad is that everybody, like, learned in high school, or a lot of people learned in high school, like, mean and standard deviation. So a lot of people very earnestly and sometimes angrily were like, standard deviation, that's the answer. But in fact, standard deviation is not the right answer because standard deviation assumes baked in a normal curve. Right. And so you're going to get a number that's going to be, standard deviation means that if you go in the same, if you go in both directions with that number, you get roughly the same number of people. But if you go right with the standard deviation in Skylight, it gives you a completely different number of people than going left. So it's just wrong. Now you can do geometric standard deviation, which is more approximately correct and all that's all that's true right but right? that's going to be lost on like, like problem performance was is a good start it's like oh, i have already okay. lost the room right, right. so <laughs> the, the point is it's important for people to know basically the typical performance which is like median which is already different from mean typical performance is it's crazy how much people's mind can't get past what it means right they assume that it means like i said like height human height and it just it's so much it's like what it basic, we were thinking about making a video, which I think we'll probably still do, that shows you, uh, it just like draws a line across the screen for every request, and it takes your real data and just draws it however long it took, right? So what you'll see is a lot of them will go, you know, will go by in 100 milliseconds, but occasionally they'll take like seconds. And I don't know if, oh, we need to design that, right? The exact design is tricky. But the point is that I think people just have no, if your users are clicking around your app, they probably are clicking around it like many dozens of times which means they probably are experiencing the slow performance sometimes, like every user. Yep. <laughs> and that one slow page load, if, you're, if you still haven't necessarily gotten that conversion, that one time that it takes three seconds might be enough to get them to get frustrated and, and close the like tab. Add to cart, that's the wrong one to be slow. Right? And, if, and if, you, if it happens one out of every 20 times, a lot of times it's going to be add to cart. Mm-hmm. I think the real solution to that is turbo links. <laughs> I, the thing, I'll just say one more thing before we... Before we finish, which is the, one of the things that I found most mind-blowing about all of this is that if you look at the distribution for response times, number one, it turns out that basically with, if you get enough data, they all look pretty much the same. Like I can reliably predict what a response time distribution will look like given sufficient data. There's rare cases where there's like caching effects or whatever, but in most cases it turns out to be true. But what's especially surprising to me is that if you look at things like income distribution or book sales or city distributions, or like I was looking up the other day, like how long it takes people to commute to work on a given day, right? So it's like on a fast day, it'll be like 30 minute commute on a bad day, it'll be like an hour and a half. And you can plot that, you know, on a curve. All these things end up looking the same. And the crazy thing is that in people's heads, everybody assumes they look like a bell curve, right? Which is why we get things like, oh my God, how did the financial crisis happen? You would have expected that to happen one in a billion years, but in fact, there was a fat tail, right? There's basically all these things, like people are like, how does, how, you know, what would be an ideal income distribution? People in their head are imagining a bell curve, but there's not a bell curve. There's a very, very extreme logarithmic distribution. And it just, it makes it hard to discuss almost anything. 
Good luck. <laughs> I'll, I'll work on Rails performance. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, Rails performance. That's that's another show. Oh, uh, I'm get. I, we're gonna have to do that in another show because I'm. The last two months of my life has been last three, four months maybe has been working on various different performance problems on apps, and I'm just becoming disillusioned. I believe. I mean, so one thing that's pretty cool about Skylight, which we talked about recently, is people don't do a good job of measuring how much time is lost to GC because it's very hard to track. But Skylight just tells you which, which requests are generating the most garbage. So if you're like, oh, I, there's like dark matter, I can't measure it, but something is slow, <laughs> and it's GC, um, we have now a, head, like a heads up on the, on the dashboard that shows you which endpoints are generating the most garbage, and you can click on there, click on allocations, and it will show, it will just like, like those geographic maps that show you the map of the United States based on how many people are in them, like the same thing for your request, but based on how many allocations per event. So you can just like go in and figure out what's doing it. I'll have to check that out because like I, I think when I logged in before, I loved that I could switch between response time and allocations or whatever. But response time, I had a good idea for what I wanted to see there. And allocations, I was like, I don't... Yeah, so exactly. So we, we used to... like Originally, we allowed you to switch. But in, in fact, it is the case that people don't know what they're looking for. So what we've done now is we, we don't sort by allocations on the main list anymore but we automatically pop up things that we know are too many allocations. So there's now a little like pie icon that shows up, and that means this endpoint has too many allocations, um, which doesn't mean the endpoint is slow. The endpoint might be fast. It just means that um, it is going to produce a lot of garbage collection across all your endpoints, which you can't actually see because they happen, they get spread out, right? So they happen at any random endpoint is going to see the garbage collection, which means they just average out. So you can never find them. But now you can say, okay, this endpoint is generating a lot of garbage. If you click on it and then you click on allocations in the endpoint page, it will just show you which, like this, this action or this template, like this view is using a lot, is creating a lot of garbage. And you can go in and like look at that exact thing. So cool. seems good. All right. Thank you so much for coming on, Yehuda. It was great having you. No problem. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 39. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback on this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm or leave feedback on the website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed and we'll see you next time. <laughs>